1: Indians love lists. If you read any ancient Indian text, it will have the five of these, the eight of those, the seven of these, the three of those, and I'm not big on lists. So uh, about a decade ago, I decided I would go through the Yoga Sutra and other texts, and every time I saw a list, I would figure out how to make it into a circle. So if it was like the eight limbs, Instead of thinking about it linearly, I just made it into a circle. And it becomes much more related, I think, to how we circumambulate our lives. Over and over again, we go through the same cycles. You see? Uh, this cycle happens in akshana. So this whole process, this, this moment of experience, happening this quickly. Or even faster than that. And the process of mindfulness is to slow down the perceptual field or what we're filtering the perceptual field through so that we can see moment to moment experience and how craving, clinging, attachment, aversion, selfing, fear, how they are constructed within each moment, ultimately to see that the whole process (coughs) is empty of an inherent separate self, which leads to, the theory goes, a more altruistic and compassionate attitude, because we're not constantly building up our self, our sense of self, every moment. So, let me sum this up with an example which I started a couple days ago. You're at home. You're alone. The power's out. The internet is not working. You check Safari. You can't get online. So then you check your email and you can't get on email. So you check your Twitter account, but you don't have a Twitter account, even though you really want a Twitter account. You check Instagram, you check all the online dating um, websites that you're a part of. There's nobody out there. You're all alone, and you're at home. And then a kind of pang of sensation shows up somewhere between your navel and your heart. And then you think to yourself, there is ice cream in the freezer (laughs) melting because the power's out. So you go to the freezer, you get out a tub of ice cream and you eat the whole thing, a liter of ice cream. For you Americans, a liter is a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then you feel terrible, but it's a triple terrible. There should be a, an ice cream called Triple Terrible. <laughs> T-T-T. You know? It's like six, 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 And you feel a trip Because first of all, your stomach feels awful because you just ate a whole tub of ice cream. Second of all, then you feel bad because you ate a whole tub of ice cream. And then last, the feelings around the loneliness that you thought you could eat your way out of are actually right there. So, sensations arise to experience through the body. This gives rise to negative feeling. <coughs> because there's negative feeling, we go straight to dvesha, aversion. We don't want to feel that feeling. Whatever those sensations are that we label loneliness, when the mind goes near them, it's programmed to get out of there as fast as possible. I don't want to feel alone. So we go straight into this story about me, and we start walking to the freezer. And as we're walking to the freezer, we're not actually seeing or being with what's really going on. We're being with our idea, which is a strategy superimposed on the feeling that... I need ice cream. Right? The I need ice cream story is so far away, even in one second, from what's really going on, and then this gives rise to an action. And the action then plants a seed in the Sangskaras so that next time you feel those sensations, you have planted a groove so that you will go towards the ice cream, Mm -hmm. right? So when you take an action, it plants a groove in your psychology, in your physiology, in our economy, and in our ecology. Because if you feel lonely and you take an action because you're not seeing clearly, That actually causes farms to produce more cattle, to produce more milk for your organic ice cream. And even though you buy your Ben and Jerry's ice cream, thinking this is a social enterprise that's doing good things in the world, if we were able to manage our loneliness, we would produce less ice cream and we would not need so many cows making milk for organic (coughs) ice cream, you see? The point being that a samskara is never psychological and physical in a private sense. That every time you take an action, it has an effect in the whole schema, in the whole matrix, because you inter-are. We Mm inter-exist. So that's why one day, contemplative practice is going to be illegal.
2: (laughs) Because it's very
1: bad for the gross national product. Because if you learn how to take care of what you're feeling, then you won't act out your reactivity to those feelings in the marketplace. And the malls will have trouble supporting themselves because you won't be consuming so much, because you might actually be satisfied even in the middle of pain, even in the heart of loneliness. How can you just feel sad without adding sadness on top of sadness? How can we feel lonely without adding ice cream, on top of the loneliness.
3: At what point do we go unconscious?
1: Well, this whole thing could be unconscious.
3: So there isn't like one point where it's more common for you to go unconscious and make choices that are more unconscious, which would be like reacting to... Like you said, the loneliness is actually the reason, Yeah. but you might not think because you're eating ice cream is because
2: you're lonely, if yeah. you're
1: unconscious. Right. So yeah.
2: at what point?
1: Yeah, so let's hold on to that question, because okay. that's going to be the heart of how we're going to work with this model. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, something similar, I've read that it
3: takes seven seconds for a thought to go the downward spiral. So you start with something, you look into the mirror, and you go like, oh, to do it, today I look really bad. And uh-huh. then you go like, oh my, I don't know, my eyebrow is weird, and then oh, look at the shoulder, and then, oh, look, at the shoulder. And then oh, look at my belly, and then you go, so after the second, seven second is passed, you go more and more down into the negative if you squeeze uh-huh. it. Uh-huh.
1: I, I've never heard of that before, but it could make sense. Let's say one of these cycles is a second, or let's say there's 10 of them in a second, then you can imagine, you've gone through this 10 times in a second, and you keep reinforcing that story in seven seconds. You, you, you've reinforced something at a very deep level. You could also turn it around. If you catch yourself in the very beginning,
2: they yes. say, then you can say, oh, but my hair looks good today. And
1: we I haven't got like to that part yet. That's the Caitlin section. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't got there yet. Yeah.
3: Well, this is interesting because I'm, I'm also thinking about the rise of yoga studios, and how uh, maybe uh, it's linked to,
1: sorry, I can't see very well, Abhinivesha,
2: because I was reading recently a Radha Yoga book, and it it described Abhinivesha, very much
3: about clinging to the physical form in the body and Mm -hmm. wanting it to be a perfect way. And then, um, (coughs) and so I wonder if we're kind of avoiding that experience yeah. by yeah.
2: going
1: yoga yeah you <laughs> could, you could say that the way that the physical culture of yoga can be practiced yeah. if the psychological level is not there to work with right. that you could then be thinking that your body is yours Right. 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 <laughs> isn't that funny mm-hmm. that you could think that
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah So um, I just want to bring up two issues here. One is is that this is a model of habit that is not ethically indeterminate. that every time you move through this circle, it has ethical implications. Mm-hmm. This is not just a model of private interiority. This is also showing us that the way we perceive has an effect in the mind, in the body, and in the body politic, always. You could push it further and say, we have a moral responsibility to be awake. because otherwise we're acting out our misperceptions and our life is not only a train wreck of broken relationships, but those broken relationships then influence the culture again in broken ways. So, the second thing I just want to point out is that it's easy to interpret this for an individual, which is how it's always talked about in traditional circles. And what I want you to think about, because I think about this all the time, and I want you to think about what I think about, (laughs) is how can you take this model, which is a model of addiction, and scale it up for the culture? Because if in meditative practice, What we're looking at is this process and seeing the futility of clinging to stories. How do you scale that insight up to a culture that is addicted to stories that cause so much devastation in our environment, in our psychology, in our social networks? So I just want you to hold on to that thought because that's something I'm very interested in pursuing. But now, following Caitlin's lead, um, let's explore the other side. If this is a model of craving and addiction, then what could you pull out of the circle so that it was a model of freedom, relatedness, creativity, Spontaneity and love. What could you pull out of the model and still have a functioning human being? Yeah? what could you, well, I was going to say that if you change your attention to see, then that undermines you know, all of this. Once that attention is if it's an intention not to see, if the intention is changed to see, then this all it becomes it can become undermined. Right? So if you took out the uh, ah, yeah, uh, would you still have abhinivesha? Yeah, I think you still have all all of that happening, but you would see it happening, and that would be pretty powerful. Right. So, if you took out avidya, would you still have karma? Yes. <clears throat> Any other ideas? Yep. Yeah? Uh, I don't remember what uh, abhinivasha is. Abhinivasha is the fear of letting go okay. of the story of me.
2: I feel that that's intertwined with asmita, so I think. Mm-hmm.
1: So, if you took out the fear of letting go, which is mine, and you took out the story of I, me, and mine, could you still have a functioning human being? No, but I
2: feel like that's intertwined.
1: It's intertwined, <laughs> but could you take them out? Like if you had no story of me. And, and, and let me say that traditionally, this is how enlightenment is talked about the word nirvana literally means to extinguish. And it's to extinguish self-reference. In Western psychology, we call this depersonalization as a pathology. In the Indian tradition, this is considered progress. So can we completely let go of our sense of self? Is this possible? There are many stories of meditators um, who uh, have been in long-term retreat, and they come out of retreat, and somebody says their name, and they don't know who that's referring to. I remember when I was 13, I went on a 13-day canoe trip in Algonquin Park with six other people. And I remember after just 13 days coming back into civilization, not having seen any other people, and going to the bathroom, and then going to wash my hands and looking in the mirror, and not recognizing myself at all. that Oh yeah, that's what I look like. We've all had this experience of a discontinuity of self. And the paradox is, most of the time, that experience is tremendously freeing. And sometimes it's absolutely terrifying. What else could you take up? Caitlin. Um,
3: it seems, well, I think that's why I was maybe asking about it before. Because it seems like there's there's a lot of awareness in that moment with um, attachment and aversion. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that's what comes up for us when we practice. Yeah. So like, if we could like lessen those or make them less strong, uh-huh. then maybe it would make, like, the story... The story would still be there, but we could, like, decrease its, like, yeah. power
1: or... Okay. Policy. So let, let's try and draw that out, okay? <laughs> so I'm going to use green because it's... What is, this is the millennial color. Okay. <laughs> okay. So one of the things that is... Uh, um, promised in the practice we're doing is that you can cut <coughs> this circle in half like this. Okay. And this side of the circle is called dukkha. No, I'm sorry. <coughs> this side of the circle is called dukkha. What would it mean to be able to go into the experience of loneliness, to feel the sensations present there, seeing the story created, but not acting on it, seeing what's actually going on, and taking the action of maybe sitting still? I'm going to sit down in this chair and look at the freezer without getting up. Riding the wave of craving and riding it out. And watching the whole self story ride itself out. And this will plant a (coughs) samskara so that I'm going to begin perceiving, or there is a new or a reperception. In neuropsychology, they don't like using the word liberation, so they call it reperception. Kind of interesting. Um, so I'm going to so there's going to be a reperception of the sensation planting in effect, an action planting a new seed, a new possibility. And we also know. Does anybody here do cross-country skiing? Okay, when you do cross-country skiing, you know how there's a groove from the skis? I'm actually making this up because I've never done that before. There's a track, track, and it's really hard to get out of the track, right? And the more you go down the track, the deeper the groove gets. Okay, so it's very hard to stop here and re-perceive what's going on. Because the momentum from the groove is so strong in terms of how you're perceiving each and every experience. You see? (laughs) So this, cutting this in half, creates a new term. Oh, this practice, this green line is a practice called mindfulness. Okay. And mindfulness is a wedge that's wedged between feeling the wedge of mindfulness is trying to keep the feeling that's arising in perception, but interrupt the attachment or aversion to that feeling. When I was young, I wanted to become enlightened. That was my goal, whatever it took. So I did a lot of retreat practice. And the way that I thought to myself was that the wedge of mindfulness actually happens over here. So I thought that the goal of meditation practice is actually to wedge in meditation so that you don't have to feel so much. And you can get away with that for two or three years. But this, and then you really learn the hard way, but that's not how it works. That meditation practice doesn't reduce feeling, it actually widens the spectrum of what you can feel. But what it interrupts is the tendency to have aversion or attachment and create a story about it. And in the yoga tradition, this wedge has a name, and the name is called Tapas sounds like what you want for dinner, but tapas literally means heat or fire. For most people, the experience of tapas is the heat of anxiety. I would define tapas as the third that sits between opposites. So as a practice, in a way, you could say tapas is the practice of patience. It's the practice of being able to sit right in the middle of opposites and trust in the emergence of a new possibility. Being in the fire of opposites. In a way, sometimes I think all people who... Uh, are in the helping professions or are yoga teachers or meditation instructors I feel like their job is just to find creative or skillful means to hold people in this fire.
2: Can you say again um, tapas is the heat or fire the practice of patience to sit in the opposite to be able to sit with the
1: opposite and trust in the... And trust in the possibility of something to emerge that you couldn't have thought of. Okay. You see, the door opens from the other side. Robert? Mm -hmm. Back to the aching knee. The aching knee. Yeah. Yeah. My my knee is aching. Uh Uh-huh. And sometimes... um, Is a warning that uh, I'm injuring myself and when I now um, put this wedge between my feeling of the ache and just stay like Mm -hmm. I am Mm -hmm. isn't that a possibility that
2: I get or that I injure myself?
1: Yes (laughs) (laughs) So there is discernment so maybe there are sensations where, oh, uh, there's pain in the knee, the joint doesn't feel right, and so you take an action and you change it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there's the possibility where, um, this happens a lot for yoga students when they first start meditating. Yoga students are the hardest people to teach sitting meditation to. Because they're addicted to sensation. And in yoga postures, when you feel anything in your body, you breathe into it, you move with it, you explore it, you investigate it. And so when you see people who are learning sitting and they come from a yoga background, they're always like... I I always want to make a film of uh, yoga students learning meditation for the first time and then turning it up high speed, and just watching. (laughs) (laughs) So in meditative practice, when sensation arises, and this is the biggest difference between meditation and yoga asana, is that when sensations arise, we stay still. And we open up to the unfolding, changing nature of sensation, And then we notice, which is harder to see in movement and easier to see in stillness, we notice that there's a big gap between what we're feeling and what we think we need to do about it. And in meditation practice, we aim for that gap again and again and again. And the storyteller hates tapas. the storyteller does not like being wedged into feeling. Because you could say that a lot of our stories are convenient escape routes or defense mechanisms. So we don't really need to feel what's actually going on in our moment-to-moment experience.
2: Yeah. So it needs Vidya to discern between...
1: Vidya needs to discern so you can take an action here based on a negative feeling, mm-hmm. but it just might not be a big drama.
2: Yeah.
1: Like, oh, knees hurt, knees hurting, switch. As opposed to, knees hurting, cancer, death. Okay. <laughs> I hate Michael. Why is he keeping me here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of questions, but I just want to go a little bit further, if that's okay. Um, (coughs) Is that okay? Can can we just go a little bit further with us? Okay. So, this is called dukkha. When we're spending our time in this place, which according to the study we looked at yesterday from Harvard on mind-wandering, is 47% of the time, 47%, half our life we're spending telling stories about what's not actually happening. How could we possibly be wise enough to take action and clearly perceive our experience? If we're not even perceiving close to clearly, or I would say not clearly, but compassionately, Creatively. So, what I want to add to this model before we finish today is that, and we're going to go through this in even more detail tomorrow, don't worry, is when we're cycling through this, it has an effect in our relational lives. Most of us, our problems are not in our hamstrings and in our shoulder joints. Our deeper problems are showing up in our relationships because our patterns of attachment and aversion are always brought to the surface in relational life. We can't help it. So relationship is the key to intimacy. Relationship is the key to spiritual practice. Because it's through relationship that we see what's sacred, and it's through relationship that we see how our scars are getting in the way all the time. And so, that's why in the Buddhist tradition and in the yoga tradition, when people always say, what's the big difference between Western psychology and the Eastern traditions? and they have conversations about the self and the nature of the self, the biggest difference is attention to ethics. If you really want to change, if you really want to heal, you begin by looking at the quality of your relationships. And so, ahimsa, nonviolence, Satya, honesty. Asteya, not taking what's not given freely. Brahmacharya, the wise use of sexual energy. And Aparigraha, not being greedy. are directly related to the interaction of karma and the samskaras, and directly related to perception.
2: Why are there only Let's five?
1: See. Why are there only five?
2: it's not, it's not eight.
1: Oh, this says greed. Okay. Greedy. Sorry. Uh, in the Yoga Sutra, there's five. Five yamas. Yeah. First limb of yoga. And this is really important because uh, in the Buddhist tradition this is slightly different, which is instead of the non-greed, it's not taking intoxicants. Um, which I usually translate as not taking anything that intoxicates your ego. Which kind of opens it up beyond um, Vodka. <laughs> Just a little. (laughs) Um, So, uh, what I want to end with today is that mindfulness practice is a commitment to ethics. That when we give our attention to what's happening in moment-to-moment experience, it changes how we respond to what's showing up internally and externally. And the way we respond is an action that has an effect in our bodies and in our society. So you can't separate attentiveness and ethics. Because we start to see that if we cause harm, it's really bad for me end for you. Or we start to see that there's no option other than honesty. If we're all interdependent, how can I steal something? You see? So that ethics influences the way we perceive, and ethics is the result of our actions. And that's why, and some of you know this from studying at Center of Gravity, I focus so much on ethics. Because I think ethics provides a basis for how we make actions. It's a guideline. It's not something that you follow so that Santa Claus will come down the chimney with a lot of Lego. Ethics are something that you use as a guideline to really look at how you're operating and the habits that come from the background that mostly are not your fault. They're internalized values from the culture or family or Hollywood. So the pattern of giving attention to what we're actually feeling that we call mindfulness is actually a form of social action. And on the outside it looks like an internal private meditative (coughs) practice, but it's actually changing the deep grooves in our genetics. It's turning genes on and off in a way that creates values that can become the seeds for a new kind of culture. So in a way, this is a model of social awakening. This is a model not of how to get enlightened and reach final liberation all by yourself. This is a model for how to create a different kind of community, a different kind of city, and a different kind of culture based on the values of not harming, not stealing, not taking what's not offered, honesty, using our creative energy wisely. And lastly, uh, instead of being dominated by greed, which is an (coughs) institutional value in our culture, we have the option of practicing generosity. So, you can't separate individual awakening and social awakening. They work synchronistically. So, that's why this is not just a model of psychology in a kind of personal sense. It's a model of how we can live as a community and as a culture so we can plant seeds of peace and joy and non-competitiveness. And equanimity. So, a couple <coughs> of questions, and then we'll call it a day. So we've covered a lot. Lana had her hand up for a long time.
3: Yeah, I'm just trying to understand like the very beginning of it, and I'm sorry I've seen you do <coughs> the circle a lot of times, but That's I always okay. get confused. So, when you're talking about the topic choice, and you ask to be taken on by a teacher. Yeah. and you hadn't forgiven your parents, which is something that you've said before. Uh-huh. And I'm oh, I wasn't
1: saying that was my experience. I was just saying he was saying yes. that this is something a student should do.
3: I understand that. Yeah. Okay. And I've heard you talk about that before, yeah. the ways that like, students sacrifice something in order to study, or uh-huh. like, traditionally, right? Yeah. Um, and so, traditionally then, obviously there was no psychotherapy, like. To go hand in hand mm-hmm. with all of this, all of these ways that you yeah. we were resolving our shit. Yeah. So, what like was religion the way then? The way that some of these things are resolved. Yeah. Like what kind of su-
1: Yeah. Very likely Re- religion and ritual, and the support of the, uh, the network of one's community, uh, elders. Uh, I think there have always been people who support us go deeper in our practice, and we never or rarely go through this alone. There's often someone there to support us in this process, and in that process we're going to project all kinds of things onto those people. I'm not an anthropologist, and I don't understand the nature of the mind of someone who lived 2,500 years ago, but I know that now as Western people we have mm-hmm. wounds that, when they're not worked with, make our relationships into disasters. And how many times do you have to go through a relationship that ends badly and say, Did I just do that again? But
2: can I ask? Yes. Sorry, I really
3: just felt that like what I was leading up to is the part that, like, when we're at the end of it all, even with all of these different support mm-hmm. systems, like when you're dying, even if you're willing to die, mm-hmm. um, if there's pain, like if there's actually if there's physical pain yeah. in the body, yeah. you're taking it on by yourself. Uh-huh. And so, the, I always get confused about the part that you say. Like, have you ever watched someone be like resistant to the death? But like, what if like they're not resistant, but there's still pain? Like, how do you, I sometimes I just feel like it sounds really good but then you're you're stuck with your own like even for people who are stuck with their own pain.
1: So what this model is saying is that on this side it's not your pain. On this side it's your pain. But on this side it's pain. It's
3: the body's pain, right? It's pain.
1: On this side, it's your suffering. And on this side, it's just the suffering. There is suffering. How do we embrace it? It's very hard to embrace suffering when you think it's yours because it's so personal. Maybe our lives are not as personal and important as we keep thinking that they are because we're spending 47% of our time over here and everything is so personal. It's about me. Guess what? You don't ever get enlightened because me cannot wake up. Me is always in habit. Imagine if you got enlightened and then you said, oh, enlightenment, just like I thought it would be. <laughs> That's why I said on the first day, you know, there's this saying that self-knowledge is always bad news. For because for the self, a little more understanding is always quite traumatic because the self is just a cork floating on a vast ocean and it's always almost being submerged and actually probably often being submerged allows the cork to be more resilient that's one of the reasons why I think a daily meditation practice is so important because in meditation practice we have experiences of letting go of the self-clinging and being submerged in something bigger than just our narrow sense of self. And I think if you do that every day, it actually creates a resiliency in our sense of self so that when difficulty happens, we can bounce back more easily because we're not as constricted around this small, tight muscle that as our spiritual practice matures, the effect psychologically is that the self doesn't disappear so much as it becomes more porous. It becomes more transparent. And the byproduct is a sense of humor. Because it's very hard to have a sense of humor when the self is not resilient, because everything is so personal. So, let's end on this note. And tomorrow, we're going to look at this in terms of how we can enter into this space by delaying gratification. And then how this all relates to a practice of love. And then uh, the last class, we're going to look at Um, how this applies to cultivating uh, (coughs) friendliness, kindness, compassion, uh, equanimity, loving kindness. So, thank you very much. Let's finish by chanting.
0: For listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth, tell a friend, or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.